0: Part 1 of Infamous Day, Marines at Pearl Harbor, 7 December 1941. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Infamous Day, Marines at Pearl Harbor, 7 December 1941. By Robert J. Cressman and J. Michael Winger. Part 1 on the afternoon of 6 december 1941 tai sing lu the colorful pearl harbor navy yard photographer arranged with platoon sergeant charles r christinot the non-commissioned officer in charge of the main gate at the naval yard to have his marines pose for a photograph between eight thirty and nine thirty sunday morning in front of the new concrete main gate the photo was to be for a christmas card as war clouds gathered over the pacific basin in late 1941 the united states pacific fleet operated as it had since may 1940 from pearl harbor while the security of that fleet and for the island of oahu lay in the army's hands that of the navy yard and the naval air stations at pearl harbor and Kinohoe bay lay in the hands of marines In addition, on board the fleet's battleships, aircraft carriers, and some of its cruisers, Marines provided security, served as orderlies for embarked flag officers and ship's captains, and manned secondary anti-aircraft and machine-gun batteries, seagoing duties familiar to the Corps since its inception." the marine barracks at pearl harbor comprised a barracks detachment and two companies a and b the men living in a comfortable three-story concrete barracks company a manned the main gate at the submarine base and naval yard and other distant outposts providing yard security while company b enforced traffic regulations and maintained proper police and order under the auspices of the yard police officer in addition marines ran the navy yard fire department elements of marine defense battalions made pearl harbor their home too residing in the several one hundred man temporary wooden barracks buildings that had been completed during nineteen forty and nineteen forty one less commodious but no less important was the burgeoning air base that marines of marine aircraft group m a g two later twenty one had hewn and hammered out near barbers point ewa mooring mast field home for a marine aircraft group consisting of fighting scout bombing and utility squadrons on 27 november having been privy to intelligence information gleaned from intercepted and translated japanese diplomatic message traffic admiral harold r stark the chief of naval operations and general george c marshall the army's chief of staff sent a war warning to their principal commanders on oahu admiral husband e kimmel the commander-in-chief pacific fleet and lieutenant-general walter c short the commander of the hawaiian department thus adjured to take appropriate defensive measures and feeling that his more exposed advance bases needed strengthening kemmel set in motion a plan that had been completed as early as ten november to provide planes for midway and wake the latter was to receive fighters twelve grumman f four f three wildcats of marine fighter squadron b m f two eleven while Midway was to get scout bombers from Marine Scout Bomber Squadron, BMSB-231. The following day, 28 November 1941, the carrier Enterprise, CV-6, departed Pearl in Task Force 8 under Vice Admiral William F. Halsey, Jr., Commander, Aircraft Battle Force, embarking BMF-211 at sea bmsb two three one was to embark in another carrier lexington cv two in task force twelve under rear admiral john h newton on five december at the outset apparently no one except the squadron commanders knew their respective destinations but the men of vmf two eleven and vmsb two thirty one meanwhile apparently ordered their affairs and made ready for what was to appear as advanced base exercises among those men seeing to his financial affairs at ewa mooring mast field on 3 december 1941 was first lieutenant richard e fleming usmcr who wrote to his widowed mother this is the last time i'll be able to write for probably some time i'm sorry i can't give you any details it's that secret on the 5th Task Force 12 sailed from Pearl 18 light gray Vought SB2U3 Vindicators from VM SB231 under 41-year-old Major Clarence J Buddy Chapel then made the 1.7 hour flight from Iwo and landed on board Lexington along with the Lady Lex air group planes recovered the force set course for Midway the Lexington departed Pearl Harbor on the morning of 5 December. That afternoon saw the arrival of Battleship Division I from gunnery exercises in the Hawaiian operating area, and the three dreadnoughts Arizona, BB-39, Nevada, BB-36, and Oklahoma, BB-37, moored in their assigned berths at the keys along Ford Island the movements of the ships in and out of pearl harbor had been the object of much interest on the part of the espionage system operating out of the japanese consulate in honolulu throughout the year nineteen forty one for the information its operatives were providing went to support an ambitious and bold operation that had taken shape over several months unbeknownst to admiral kemmel a japanese task force under the command of vice-admiral chiuchi nagumo formed around six carriers and the most powerful force of its kind ever assembled by any naval power had set out from the remote kuril islands on twenty seventh november it observed radio silence and steamed via the comparatively less traveled northern pacific nagumo's mission was to destroy the united states pacific fleet and thus ensure its being unable to threaten the japanese southern operation poised to attack american british and dutch possessions in the far east all of the warning signs made available to admiral Kimmel and general short pointed toward hostilities occurring within the foreseeable future but not on oahu war however was about to burst upon the marines at pearl harbor like a thunderclap from a clear sky suddenly hurled into war some two hundred miles north of oahu vice-admiral nagumo's first air fleet formed around the aircraft carriers akagi kaga soryu hiru shokaku and zuikaku pressed southward in the pre-dawn hours of 7 december 1941 at five fifty the dark gray ships swung to port into the brisk easterly wind and commenced launching an initial strike of a hundred and eighty four planes ten minutes later a second strike would take off after an hour's interval once airborne the fifty one aichi d three a one type ninety nine dive bombers b a l s eighty nine nakajima b five n two attack planes Cates, used in high level bombing or torpedo bombing roles and 43 mitsubishi a6m2 type 00 fighters zeros led by commander mitsuo fushida akagi's air group commander wheeled around climbed to 3000 meters and droned toward the south at 616 The only other military planes aloft that morning were Douglas S.B.D. Dauntlesses from Enterprise flying searches ahead of the carrier as she returned from Wake Island, Army Boeing B-17 flying fortresses heading in from the mainland, and Navy-consolidated P.B.Y. Catalinas on routine patrols out of the naval air stations at Ford Island and Kaneohe. That morning, 15 of the ships at Pearl Harbor numbered marine detachments among their complements. Eight battleships, two heavy cruisers, four light cruisers, and one auxiliary. A 16th detachment assigned to the auxiliary, Target Gunnery Training Ship, Utah, AG-16, was ashore on temporary duty at the 14th Naval District Rifle Range at Puuloa Point at seven fifty-three, lieutenant frank erickson uscg the naval air station nas ford island duty officer watched privates first class frank dudovic and james d young and private paul o zeller usmcr the marine color guard march up and take post for colors satisfied that all looked in order outside erickson stepped back into the office to check if the assistant officer of the day was ready to play the recording for sounding colors on the loudspeaker the sound of two heavy explosions however sent the coast guard pilot running to the door he reached it just in time to see a kate fly past ten ten dock and release a torpedo the markings on the plane which looked like balls of fire left no question as to its identity the explosion of the torpedo as it struck the battleship California, BB 44, moored near the administration building, left no doubt as to its intent. The Marines didn't wait for colors, Erickson recalled later. The flag went right up, but the tune was general quarters. As all hell broke loose around them, Dudovic, Young, and Zeller unflinchingly hoisted the stars and stripes with the same smartness and precision that had characterized their participation in peacetime ceremonies. At the crew barracks on Ford Island, Corporal Clifton Webster and Private First Class Albert E. Yale headed for the roof immediately after General Quarters sounded. In the direct line of fire from strafing planes, they set up a machine gun across oahu as japanese planes swept in over nas kanaoki bay the marine detachment there initially the only men who had weapons hurried to their posts and began firing at the attackers since the american aircraft carriers were at sea the japanese targeted the battleships which lay moored off fort island at one end of battleship row lay nevada at eight o two the battleship's fifty caliber machine guns opened fire on the torpedo planes bearing down on them from the direction of the navy yard her gunners believed that they had shot one down almost immediately an instant later however a torpedo penetrated her port side and exploded ahead of nevada lay arizona with the repair ship vestal a r four alongside preparing for a tender availability major allen shapley had been relieved the previous day as detachment commanding officer by captain john h earle jr who had come over to arizona from tennessee BB forty three awaiting transportation to the naval operating base san diego and assignment to the second marine division shapley was lingering on board to play first base on the battleship's baseball team in a game scheduled with the squad from the carrier enterprise cv six after the morning meal he started down to his cabin to change seated at breakfast sergeant john m baker heard the air raid alarm followed closely by an explosion in the distance and machine-gun fire corporal earl c nightingale leaving the table had paid no heed to the alarm at the outset since he had no anti-aircraft battle station but ran to the door on the port side that opened out onto the quarter-deck at the sound of the distant explosion looking out he saw what looked like a bomb splash alongside nevada marines from the ship's color guard then burst breathlessly into the messing compartment saying that they were being attacked as general quarters sounded baker and nightingale among the others headed for their battle station aft congestion at the starboard ladder that led through casement number nine prompted second lieutenant carlton e simonson u s m c r the ship's junior marine officer to force his way through both baker and nightingale noted in passing that the five inch fifty one there was already manned and baker heard corporal Bernice l bond the gun captain tell the crew to train it out nightingale noted that the men seemed extremely calm and collected as lieutenant simonson led the marines up the ladder on the starboard side of the mainmast tripod an eight hundred kilogram converted armor-piercing shell dropped by a Kate from kaga ricocheted off the side of turret four penetrating the deck it exploded in the vicinity of the captain's pantry sergeant baker was following simonson up the mainmast when the bomb exploded shrapnel cutting down the officer as he reached the first platform he crumpled to the deck nightingale seeing him flat on his back bent over him to see what he could do but simonson dying motioned for his men to continue on up the ladder nightingale continued up to secondary aft and reported to major shapley that nothing could be done for simonson an instant later, a rising babble of voices in the secondary station prompted Nightingale to call for silence. No sooner had the tense quiet settled in, when suddenly a terrible explosion shook the ship, as a second 800-kilogram bomb, dropped by a cape from Heru, penetrated the deck near turret Two and set off Arizona's forward magazines. An instant after the terrible fireball mushroomed upward, Nightingale looked out and saw a mass of flames forward of the mainmast. and much in the tradition of Private William Anthony of the Main reported that the ship was afire. "'We might as well go below,' Major Shapley said, looking round. "'We're no good here.'" Sergeant Baker started down the ladder nightingale the last man out followed Shapley down the port side of the mast the railings hot to the touch as they made their way below baker had just reached the searchlight platform when he heard someone shout you can't use the ladder private first-class kenneth d goodman hearing that and apparently assuming incorrectly as it turned out that the ladder down was indeed unusable instinctively leapt in desperation to the crown of turret three miraculously he made the jump with only a slight ankle injury Shapley, nightingale and baker however among others stayed on the ladder and reached the boat-deck only to find it a mass of wreckage and fire with the bodies of the slain lying thick upon it badly charred men staggered to the quarter-deck some reached it only to collapse and never rise among them was corporal bonn burned nearly black who had been ordering his crew to train out number nine five inch fifty one at the outset of the battle sadly he would not survive his wounds shapley and corporal nightingale made their way across the ship between turret three and turret four where shapley stopped to talk with lieutenant commander samuel g fuqua arizona's first lieutenant and by that point the ship's senior officer on board fuqua who appeared exceptionally calm as he helped men over the side listened as shapley told him that it appeared that a bomb had gone down the stack and triggered the explosion that doomed the ship since fighting the massive fires consuming the ship was a hopeless task fuqua told the marine that he had ordered arizona abandoned fuqua the first man sergeant baker encountered on the quarter-deck proved an inspiration his calmness gave me courage baker later declared and i looked around to see if i could help fuqua however ordered him over the side too baker complied Shapley and nightingale meanwhile reached the mooring quay alongside which arizona lay when an explosion blew them into the water Nightingale started swimming for a pipeline 150 feet away, but soon found that his ebbing strength would not permit him to reach it. Shapley, seeing the enlisted man's distress, swam over and grasped his shirt-front and told him to hang on to his shoulders. The strain of swimming with Nightingale, however, proved too much for even the athletic Shapley, who began to experience difficulties himself seeing his former detachment commander foundering nightingale loosened his grip on his shoulders and told him to go the rest of the way alone Shapley stopped however and firmly grabbed him by the shirt he refused to let go i would have drowned nightingale later recounted but for the major sergeant baker had seen their travail but too far away to help made it to ford island alone several bombs meanwhile fell close aboard nevada moored astern of arizona which had begun to hemorrhage fuel from ruptured tanks fire spread to the oil that lay thick upon the water threatening nevada as the latter counter flooded to correct the list her acting commanding officer lieutenant commander francis j thomas usnr decided that his ship had to get under way to avoid further damage due to proximity of arizona after receiving a signal from the yard tower to stand out of the harbor nevada singled up her lines at eight twenty she began moving from her berth twenty minutes later Oklahoma, Nevada's sister ship, moored inboard of Maryland in berth F-5, meanwhile manned air defense stations at about 7.57 to the sound of gunfire. After a junior officer passed the word over the general announcing system that it was not a drill, providing a suffix of profanity to underscore the fact, all men, not having an anti-aircraft defense station, were ordered to lay below the armored deck crews at the 5-inch and 3-inch batteries meanwhile opened ready-use lockers a heavy shock followed by a loud explosion came soon thereafter as a torpedo slammed home in the battleship's port side the oki soon began listing to port oil and water cascaded over the decks making them extremely slippery and silencing the ready-duty machine gun on the forward superstructure two more torpedoes struck home The massive rent in the ship's side rendered the desperate attempts at damage control futile as ensign paul h bacchus hurried from his room to his battle station on the signal bridge he passed his friend second lieutenant harry h gaver jr one of oklahoma's marine detachment junior officers on his knees attempting to close a hatch on the port side alongside the barbette of turret one part of the trunk which led from the main deck to the magazines there were men trying to come up from below at the time harry was trying to close the hatch bacchus never saw gave her again as the list increased and the oily wet decks made even standing up a chore oklahoma's acting commanding officer ordered her abandoned to save as many lives as possible Directed to leave over the starboard side, away from the direction of the roll, most of Oklahoma's men managed to get off, to be picked up by boats arriving to rescue survivors. Sergeant Thomas E. Haley and Privates First Class Marlon S. Seal and James H. Curran, Jr. swam to the nearby Maryland. Haley and Seal turned to the task of rescuing shipmates, Seal remaining on Maryland's blister ledge throughout the attack, pulling men from the water. Later, although inexperienced with that type of weapon, Haley and Curran manned Maryland's anti-aircraft guns. West Virginia rescued Privates George B. Bierman and Carl R. McPherson, who not only helped rescue others from the water, but also helped to fight that battleship's fires sergeant woodrow a polk a bomb fragment in his left hip sprained his right ankle in abandoning ship while someone clambered into a launch over sergeant leo g wares and nearly drowned him in the process gunnery sergeant norman l courier stepped from oklahoma's red hull to a boat dry shod whereas as haley and curran soon found a short-handed anti-aircraft gun on maryland's boat-deck and helped pass ammunition private first-class arthur j brooktennis whose column in the december nineteen forty one issue of the leatherneck would be the last to chronicle the peacetime activities of oklahoma's marines dislocated his left shoulder in the abandonment but survived a little over two weeks shy of his twenty-third birthday corporal willard d darling an oklahoma marine who was a native oklahoman had meanwhile clambered on board a motor launch as it headed shoreward darling saw fifty-one year old commander fred m Rohau, medical corps the capsized battleship's senior medical officer in a state of shock struggling in the oily water since rohouse seemed to be drowning, Darling unhesitatingly dove in and along with shipfitter First Class William S. Thomas kept him afloat until a second launch picked them up strafing Japanese planes and shrapnel from American guns falling around them prompted the abandonment of the launch at a dredge pipeline. So Darling jumped in and directed the doctor to follow him again the marine rescued Rohau, who proved too exhausted to make it on his own and towed him to shore maryland meanwhile inboard of oklahoma promptly manned her anti-aircraft guns at the outset of the attack her machine guns opening fire immediately she took two bomb hits but suffered only minor damage her marine detachment suffered no casualties on board Tennessee, BB 43, Marine Captain Chevy S. White, who had just turned 28 the day before, was standing officer of the deck watch as that battleship lay moored inboard of West Virginia, BB 48, in berth F 6. Since the commanding officer and the executive officer were both ashore, command devolved upon Lieutenant Commander James W. Adams, Jr., the ship's gunnery officer summoned topside at the sound of the general alarm and hearing all hands to general quarters over the ship's general announcing system adams sprinted to the bridge and spotted white en route over the din of battle adams shouted for the marine to get the ship in condition z Z, as quickly as possible white did so by the time adams reached his battle station on the bridge White was already at his own battle station, directing the ship's anti-aircraft guns. During the action in which the ship took one bomb that exploded on the center gun of turret 2 and another that penetrated the crown of turret 3, the latter breaking apart without exploding, White remained at his unprotected station, coolly and courageously directing the battleship's anti-aircraft battery tennessee claimed four enemy planes shot down west virginia outboard of tennessee had been scheduled to sail for puget sound due for overhaul on seventeen november but had been retained in hawaiian waters owing to the tense international situation in her exposed moorings she also absorbed six torpedoes while a seventh blew her rudder free Prompt counter flooding, however, prevented her from turning turtle as Oklahoma had done, and she sank, upright, alongside Tennessee. On board California, moored singly off the administration building at the Naval Air Station, junior officer of the deck on board had been Second Lieutenant Clifford B. Drake. Relieved by Ensign Herbert C. Jones, USNR, Drake went down to the wardroom for breakfast codota figs followed by steak and eggs where around seven fifty five he heard airplane engines and explosions as japanese dive bombers attacked the air station the general quarters alarm then summoned the crew to battle stations drake forsaking his meal hurried to the foretop by eight o three The two ready machine guns forward of the bridge had opened fire, followed shortly thereafter by guns number two and four of the anti-aircraft battery. As the gunners depleted the ready-use ammunition, however, two torpedoes struck home in quick succession. California began to settle as massive flooding occurred. Meanwhile, fumes from the ruptured fuel tanks she had been fueled to 95% capacity the previous day drove out the men assigned to the party attempting to bring up ammunition for the guns by hand. A call for men to bring up additional gas masks proved fruitless, as the volunteers, who included Private Arthur E. Sr., could not reach the compartment in which they were stored california's losing power because of the torpedo damage soon relegated lieutenant drake in her foretop to the role of a reporter of what was going on a somewhat confused young lieutenant suddenly hurled into war as california began listing after the torpedo hits drake began pondering his own ship's fate comparing his ship's list with that of oklahoma's he dismissed california's rolling over thinking who ever heard of a battleship capsizing oklahoma however did a few moments later meanwhile at about eight ten in response to a call for a chain of volunteers to pass five inch twenty five ammunition private senior again stepped forward and soon clambered down to the c l division compartment there he saw ensign jones lieutenant drake's relief earlier that morning standing at the foot of the ladder on the third deck directing the ammunition supply for almost twenty minutes senior and his shipmates toiled under Jones' direction until a bomb penetrated the main deck at about eight thirty and exploded on the second deck plunging the compartment into darkness as acrid smoke filled the compartment Sr. reached for his gas mask, which he had lain on a shell-box behind him, and put it on. Hearing someone say, Mr. Jones has been hit, Sr. flashed his flashlight over on the ensign's face and saw that it was all bloody. His white coat also had blood all over it. Sr. and another man then carried Jones as far as the M. Division compartment, but the ensign would not let them carry him any further, leave me alone he gasped insistently i'm done for get out of here before the magazines go off soon thereafter however before he could get clear senior felt the shock of an explosion from down below and collapsed unconscious Jones' gallantry which earned him a posthumous medal of honor impressed private howard m haines who had been confined before the attack awaiting a bad conduct discharge after the battle, a contrite Haynes, a mean character who had shown little or no respect for anything or anyone, before 7 December, approached Lt. Drake and said that he, Haynes, was alive because of the actions that Ensign Jones had taken. "'God,' he said, "'give me a chance to prove I'm worth it.' His actions that morning in the crucible of war earned Haynes a recommendation for retention in the service." Most of California's Marines, like Haines, survived the battle. Private First Class Earl D. Wallen and Privates Roy E. Lee, Jr. and Shelby C. Shook, however, did not. Nor did the badly burned Private First Class John A. Blount, Jr., who succumbed to his wounds on 9 December. Nevada's attempt to clear the harbor, meanwhile, inspired those who witnessed it. Her magnificent effort prompted a stepped-up effort by Japanese dive bomber pilots to sink her. One 250 kilogram bomb hit her boat deck just aft of a ventilator trunk and 12 feet to the starboard side of the center line, about halfway between the stack and the end of the boat deck, setting off laid-out five-inch ready-use ammunition spraying fragments decimated the gun crews the explosion wrecked the galley and blew open the starboard door of the compartment venting into casement number nine and starting a fire that swept through the casemate wrecking the gun although he had been seriously wounded by the blast that had hurt both of his legs and stripped much of his uniform from his body corporal joe r driscoll disregarded his own condition and insisted that he man another gun he refused medical treatment assisted other wounded men instead and then helped battle the flames he did not quit until those fires were out another two hundred and fifty kilogram bomb hit nevada's bridge penetrating down into casemate number six and starting a fire the blast had also severed the water-pipes providing circulating water to the water-cooled machine-guns on the foremast guns in the charge of gunnery sergeant charles e douglas intense flames enveloped the forward superstructure endangering douglas and his men and prompting orders for them to abandon their station they steadfastly remained at their posts, however, keeping the fifty caliber Brownings firing amidst the swirling black smoke until the end of the action. End of part one.